Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this September 2013 episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on genealogy and geography. And I've got some great tips, tools, products, and websites for you to help you out. We'll start over at the Genealogy Insider blog, where Managing Editor Diane Haddad will be here to give us the latest updates on the genealogy news. And then we'll jump right into our geography topic in our top tips segment with contributing editor Sunny Morton. She's going to be here to give us some tips for adding spice to our family history by getting the backstory on the places where our ancestors lived. These all come from her article. It's called Local Flavor, and it appears in the September 2013 issue of the magazine. Then in our 101 Best Website segment, we're going to explore a location-based website called History Geo. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Family Tree Magazine author and instructor Lisa Alzo is going to be back. She's going to give us some geographic tips from her class called Finding Your Ancestral Village. And finally, we'll check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, publisher of Family Tree Magazine. Allison's going to have some excellent resources to help you preserve and protect all of your family history discoveries. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy Insider blog with Diane Haddad. Well, as you know, our theme for this episode is genealogy and geography. And using maps of places for your that your ancestors once lived is a way to get a really good picture of what your ancestors' lives were like. And that kind of effort seems to be a renewed focus for genealogy organizations. Ancestry.com has their new story view. Family Search is getting all warm and fuzzy with the not charts, but hearts messaging. And here to tell us all about it, fresh from the FGS conference, is our own genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. So at FGS, there was uh, lots of announcements, and I was following your blog. Tell us what was going on and what's new. Well, you're right. That overarching theme now in genealogy seems to be the the pictures and the stories and the things that kind of flesh out your ancestors and help you get to know them. And I think that organizations are also looking at that as a way to bring more people in, kind of a, like you said, warm and fuzzy, a friendlier approach a friendlier way for people to see genealogy. Yeah, and make it really visual, right? That was kind of, yes. kind of an emphasis as well, which of course, maps certainly falls well into that. Um, but but let's start with, I know uh, in your report, your update from FGS, there was uh, some news from Ancestry.com. What, what were they yeah. talking about? They showed us a look at um, that story view, which is a way, um, it's a tab on the individual person profile in your family tree. So there's the overview and then there's a story view. And what that does is it kind of takes the events in your ancestors' timeline and then turns them into paragraphs um, mm-hmm. that you can read and that sound kind of like a story. It's very, it's basic. It's not, um, it's not like reading a book about your ancestor, yeah. obviously, <laughs> but, um, but it kind of makes it a little bit easier to, um, to read through and to, um, interpret those facts that are in your family tree. And then this story view also will take a record or a story that's attached to the person and, um, show that right next to the paragraph that's related to it to show you what they're talking about. You can um, 
do basic editing functions such as cropping the, the image or the record. And um, the person, if you've attached the person to your tree from ancestry, the pertinent part of the record will be highlighted in yellow. Hmm. What was their, did they have a projected timeline for when this was going to launch? It's kind of slowly rolling out. They started um, earlier in the summer. And if you, I think in the blog post, I linked to the Genie Musings blog because um, Randy Seavers had this for a while. Right, right. They said, I think they threw out a figure like 2% of people have it now or something, and they're slowly increasing. Now, I do not yet have this feature. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to, to keep an eye if you're an Ancestry subscriber, keep an eye on your inbox. My guess is that the emails will be going out and uh, launching it, like you say, in phases. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, changes at FamilySearch. They, they, they're really um, kind of re-looking at the direction of the Family History Centers, their messaging, and they have somebody new in charge. Tell us about that. Yeah. Diane Loosely, um, who has a great name, is the director, the new director of the Family History Library. And so she gave some news about the direction of the library. So they are going to be... Um, kind of grouping research areas with the tools that people use when they go to the library. So you're not going to the microfilm reader, then getting up and carrying your film over to the printer. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And kind of grouping, loosely grouping research topics together, such as um, like Scandinavian research, for example. So that's kind of just an interesting way to make it easier for patrons of the library and I know they were talking about, um, again, getting back into stories, um, mm-hmm. having people be able to come in and have places to record their stories or right. interview somebody in their family. Right. They're working on getting that equipment into high-traffic family search centers. And then they talked about these new family history discovery centers, which would be kind of a high-tech family history center in usually a tourist area. Mm -hmm. Um, Philadelphia was mentioned, and that would be a way to draw in somebody who's new to genealogy and to get them excited about it. So there wasn't a lot of information about what those will be like. But um, something to to kind of keep our eyes on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And of course, also out into the future is the fact that Roots Tech and FGS are going to join up to do somewhat of a joint conference in 2015. So we'll have to definitely right. keep our eyes on that. Yeah. I know that MyHeritage also has kind of a new website feature and Maureen Taylor, the photo detective is involved in that. Right. Tell us about that. Right. They have launched this initiative to get people to preserve and treasure your family photos is what it's called. And they have a website for it and you can go there and you can search the photos that are in MyHeritage.com family trees, which is kind of neat. And you can upload and store your photos there. They have some information about preserving photos. They have a partnership with a scanning company um, that will scan large numbers of pictures. So if you want to digitize your photos and you don't want to do it all yourself, you can send them off to this company and they'll do it for you quickly and high quality. So it's a kind of a one-stop shop for people to find out how to um, preserve their pictures and to be able to search for pictures of um people who might also be relatives. Exactly. Gosh, lots of news. It's, it's never a dull moment, I guess, nope. at the FGS conference. And <laughs> Certainly we'll, not. 
We'll have links in the show notes to uh, all of these different blog posts that uh, Diane's been talking about, so you get all the details on on the news in the genealogy world. Um, always great to talk to you. We'll uh, talk to you next month, Diane. Sounds good. One of the best ways to spice up your family history is by adding a dash of local flavor. Background details of your ancestors' everyday lives, like the fashion of the day, uh, the foods they ate, local scandals rocking their neighborhood, that, all of that's going to help you understand where they were coming from. And it would certainly sweeten up your storytelling. In this top tip segment, Sunny Jane Morton, who is the author of the article Local Flavor from the September 2013 issue of the magazine, she's here to share some of those homegrown ingredients that are really going to help you cook up fresh genealogical discoveries. Welcome back to the show, Sunny. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. I just love digging up the backstories of my ancestors' lives. And in this article, you've got six areas that you've identified uh, that we can really explore. Now, the first one that you mentioned here is local histories. And we all hear that term, but where exactly are we tracking these down? You know, that's a good question. And I'm finding more and more that that's the first answer uh, to any question I have of where can I learn this about my ancestor's life? Oh, go to the local history books. Well, where do we find local histories? If you are local to the area that you're uh, researching, then my answer would be really go to the local library, go to your local historical society and your local genealogical society and see what titles are sitting on their shelves. Ask the experts there what books have been published on history in their area. But if you're not local, and most of us are, I would say, not local <laughs> to the areas we're researching, then we have to get a little more creative in our search strategies. In this article, I've mentioned four different strategies. So the Library of Congress is a fantastic place to start. Their website has great tips for locating any local histories and genealogies. Uh, that have been published in the United States and even around the world. They have more than 100,000 of these local histories and uh, genealogy titles. So this is, is a fantastic place to start. Um, another catalog that I mention here is Family Search catalog. And the nice thing about Family Search is that its catalog is already organized by location for you. Mm -hmm. So you can just go and browse by location and get down to the town or county you're looking for. So if I'm really trying to search out one particular area, that's a, a place that I go to. It's not as comprehensive as the Library of Congress, but it's easier to get right to the geographical location. Good point. And, you know, you mentioned about going to the, the local areas, if you happen to be in that local area, because there you're not only getting the books, but you're getting the brains of the people. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's funny. Sometimes it'll just be somebody who's sitting next to you hearing you ask the question. They're like, oh, yeah, I've been here forever. I know about that. So that's a wonderful piece of advice. And the Library of Congress, I, I agree, too, because not only those local histories, but then there's this whole wealth of area in terms of uh, digitized ephemera, you know, the, the old documents and, and sheet music and menus from the ships that they sailed. I mean, so many different kinds of things, all part of the American Memory Project over there. And I see that you're also mentioning WorldCat. And of course, WorldCat and FamilySearch are kind of partnering up these days, right? 
They are. That's really exciting to me. <laughs> I have to say, that's a very exciting partnership for me to watch unfold. But WorldCat certainly is a place to go to find some of these titles that you might see in the Library of Congress catalog, but maybe you don't live next door to the Library of Congress. Most of us don't. So WorldCat is a great place to go to um, both find titles and to access the ones that could be sent to you from another library. Right. And of course, and then you've mentioned under digitized county histories, Google Books, which you get that added benefit of uh, being able to perhaps download them, certainly be able to search within hundreds and hundreds of pages of an old local history. And that's all right from your home computer. It really is. And most of the titles that I've listed there, Family Search, Google Books, Internet Archive, um, they're free. And they yeah. don't take very long to search, just to search for the title. So it's, it doesn't take too long at all to search for local histories, and you can really uncover, you can answer a lot of important questions about your ancestors' lives, like what took a whole generation of Polish immigrants to Pittsburgh in the early 1900s? How come they were all there? Or, you know, there's so many different questions that you have about, well, how come this particular neighborhood settled on this side of the river? Why did they choose there? Or, you know, who who attended this uh, the, the local high school and who was excluded and things like that. So the local histories really do give you insight like nobody's business into yeah. what was going on. Absolutely. And, and your second item of the six in this article, of course, is old newspapers. You've got to love the newspapers. I know in uh, researching my great-grandfather, I was amazed how many cable car accidents there were in San Francisco at the turn of the century. And it's kind of no surprise that after just a few years of working on a cable car, he became an insurance salesman. So... <laughs> That and the and the great earthquake. I mean, I think he saw a great opportunity there. But it's sometimes it's just that accumulation of articles that kind of help you see a trend in something that very likely could have affected their lives, right? Absolutely. And neighbors, the neighborhood newspapers are going to have, you know, often the same types of content as your histories, but they're going to have it on a, a total, totally microscopic level on a day by day scale. Uh-huh. So you can really get, it's almost like looking at, like the, the local histories are um, looking at the history and the neighborhood newspapers are like looking at history through a microscope. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think this is probably one of those areas of records where it's still a fairly small percentage that are digitized. And yet, if you look at the total number of pages available, it's mammoth, but that's just because newspapers are such a large, large record group. And I think we're seeing more and more of those uh, coming online as well. Of course, you mentioned in the article, newspapers.com, that's a new offering that's out there, and there's several others. And then number three was historical maps. Now, how are historical maps giving us that that local background? You know, I got my first look at historical maps when um, I had just graduated from high school, and I got a job during the summers uh, working for the county map department. And it was really a fantastic job for a budding genealogist. (laughs) So because I I spent my time helping people find plat maps and historical maps and topographical maps and all the kinds of images that give us a bird's eye view of what our ancestors' property lines and neighborhoods looked like. And there's all kinds, depending on the type of map, and I've mentioned several different types here, you might see where the house was sited on a particular property, what kinds of outbuildings they had from an outhouse to a shed or a carriage house. You might see what a building was built out of. 
some of these Sanborn insurance maps are just amazing. You'll, you'll know uh-huh. that the apartment building was 10 stories high. It had leaded glass windows and had asbestos in it. Wow. <laughs> The kind of details that you can learn from some of these maps. And I think some of the most striking ones are when we are looking at terrain, especially rural terrain, that we don't know ourselves. When I first started researching family in West Virginia, I really understood the the geography differently once I looked at a topographic map and realized that they that these families lived in these little hollers. Yeah. And that it wasn't a short drive from one point to the next. <laughs> it was a real haul to go through these little tiny, these little valleys and or climb up over these big hills. It made a lot more sense to me why the roads and railroads looked the way they did and how isolated people were. Yeah, really, that, and that's what gives you that sense of what was daily life like when uh, they didn't have time to sit down and stop and, and jot it all down for us. And, you know, any of you out there listening who have never worked yet with a plat map, got to check this out because I know in my case, I found a couple where, gosh, your ancestor's name could literally be written right there on their property. There are little 80 acres on the plat map. Uh, and Sunny spells all this out for us. Gosh, our interview time has gone by so fast, and yet I know there. I'm just going to have to tempt everybody. There's um, three more items here, and they are chock full of great ways to get that local flavor on your family history. And, Sunny, I always love your articles because you just have so many URL addresses and specific how-tos that we can just jump into right away. Well, I hope you do. It was a fun uh, metaphor to use using these local sources as uh, to give your research local flavor because I love food as much as I love it. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Oh, Sunny, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, our theme for this episode, of course, is genealogy and geography. And here in the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, it certainly seemed to make sense to go explore History Geo, which is absolutely geographic in its focus. And with me today is the creator and president, Greg Boyd. Hi, Greg. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on this show because I know personally, I'm kind of a a geography fanatic and History Geo is kind of making some waves and it's out there. And I think people may have heard of it, but they're not totally sure what it's all about. So give us the the elevator speech on uh, what is HistoryGeo.com? Well, thank you for giving that up that opportunity and I will do so. HistoryGeo.com is uh, first and foremost a place to uh, where maps will show landowners. And that's important to genealogists because um, prior to the modern era, uh, spouses were always, and I mean always, someone that lived in the neighborhood. Uh, unless you were a traveling salesperson, uh, you married somebody across the creek or across the road or uh, somewhere within two or three miles. And so when you hit those brick walls and are wondering who this family might have related to or married into, uh, our maps are going to show uh, or allow you to uh, look at neighborhoods as they existed in 1820s and 1850s and and be able to look at families in a as a collection and, and be able to figure out relationships. So that's primarily what we do. Right. I see on the website it says 7 million landowners 
spread out among 16 of the 23 public land states in Texas. I mean, this is a whole other way of looking at things. You're not just uh, corralled by counties, are you? No, no, we're not. It's uh, it's been a long uh, haul. We've been doing this for 10 years, and the the first landowners project that you're you're talking about has just been live since uh, the last day of June, I believe. And what that is is a layer, a single map of, as you said, over 7 million people in those 17 states, 16 public land plus Texas, uh, all in a single layer that you can zoom in and out on, uh, search by surname, etc. And you can make finds really quickly. Yeah, exciting. So when we get to HistoryGeo.com, I see that there is a, a demo account. So anybody can can kind of get a taste of this for free, can they not? Good question, and I wish I had a better answer than I do at this very moment. We we will have a better demo system uh, very quickly. As it is right now, when you sign, do the demo account, it will only let you into the legacy system. This first landowner's project is so brand new, uh, it's, it doesn't give you the, all the goodies. Uh, that's why we encourage you to watch that video right on that homepage to give you the sense of, of what you can get. But in addition to that, with, with whether you do a demo or account or not, uh, just use that search uh, uh, tool available on the front page, and that will show you by county, by surname, who you can find in these maps. So there are no surprises, but the demo count's not quite what it will be oh, another month or two from now. Yeah, and really the video, I think, is a, is a great place to start. It's right there, front and center on the home page. You do have subscriptions. People can uh, pay to be a part of this. What kinds of benefits? What are they going to get out of a paid subscription with History Geo? Well, they get access to to that those 7 million landowners and that single map uh, for starters. Now, just being able to, to dip into that map and start drilling down and looking at things is is a start, but it, there's more than that. What you also get um, are the ability to, uh, well, search by surnames to get into those maps. Well, if you hit, say, the name Burrow and then hit uh, search, it will show you then which states those that surname shows up in. Then drill down, you can see which county or which counties uh, that name is going to show up in, and then click one more time and be right into the county and see the parcels. To go beyond that, uh, you can also add your own uh, markers. You can click on any spot on the map, uh, add links to web pages, photographs, uh, compiled genealogies on other sites. Uh, you can start using this map as a starting point for your own research. So beyond just looking for things, you can use it to click and move move to other sites. Now, since genealogy is really focused on, of course, the locations and also the time frames. Recap for us again, you know, when we're looking at these, obviously landowners uh, came and went. What what are the time frames we're looking at? That's a good question. For it, it depends on the state. You know, for instance, in Indiana, uh, Illinois, uh, Upper Midwest, these are going to run. Uh, it, it took longer for places to settle than most people realize. For instance, you'd hit, you might look at a county in Indiana, and, and the first uh, patents might have been issued in the early 1820s. But they were still being settled into the 1880s and even the 1910s and 20s. Uh, so that it depends on the state. You get further west, it's obviously going to be later. But those are typical in that time frame. And then the south, the deep south, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, are going to be similar, uh, primarily 1820s and 30s, and then moving forward. In the in the 
central Midwest, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, that's going to be more 1880s uh, after statehood. Uh, so, and then Texas, going from the Alamo in 1836 and anywhere from 1920s, but primarily 1845s, 18, well, which was the date of statehood, uh, going into the 1860s. So it's all over the board. It's the first landowner. So the, the good thing when you drill down, that's one of the things that will quickly show you if you'll click on a parcel. It'll tell you the exact date that the uh, issued, so there's no surprises. Well, it's it's fascinating, and as I say, I, I can't imagine uh, working on genealogy and, and tracing the family history without that geography component, and this is kind of a a really exciting resource for it. It's historygeo.com. Do you have any tips for us as far as um, the best way to get the, you know, the most use out of it or to uh, kind of dabble in it to get started? It's, I, I really do push uh, and encourage people to watch that video. It will, it will not only show you how to use the system, uh, the video that's available at the homepage, but it'll also show you uh, or spark your imagination. I cover uh, a lot of different techniques, um, everything from uh, finding out uh, what the previous counties were for a particular location to finding cemeteries to finding uh, old populated places, old towns, historical towns, and things like that. Watch that video, and I think it'll it'll spark your imagination, and, and then then really there's no limits to what you might be able to make use the system for. We actually like to hear back from people and find uses all the time. It's that wide and varying in its possibilities. Well, sounds great. Again, it's historygeo.com. And Greg Boyd, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Most genealogists hope to cross the pond as quickly as possible. But to do that, you really do need to know the name of the town or the village where your ancestor lived. Well, here to give us some tips on how to identify your ancestor's place of origin is Lisa Alzo. Of course, she's the instructor of the Family Tree University course called Finding Your Ancestral Village. Welcome back, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be back. You know, I think a lot of genealogists out there kind of feel like that finding their ancestor's village in the old country is sometimes one of the most daunting tasks that they face, and yet so much hinges on it in terms of our research. Where do you recommend to your students that they kind of start this process? Well, as always, the best place to start, if you possibly can, is in your home and family sources. So you should be asking all of your relatives that are still around, you know, anybody that you can think of, do they have any paperwork? Do they have any things like naturalization paperwork or maybe a passport book or a, a baptismal certificate or some other type of identifying document for the immigrant? And, you know, that, that can be tough to do, but sometimes these documents turn up with the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely places. And so that's, that's the first place to start. Yeah, that's a great point. And sometimes it's just, do you remember asking somebody, do you remember ever hearing it talked about? You know, I remember, I remember sitting down with my grandmother and she didn't have any paperwork, but she took a little scrap of paper out and started kind of writing out phonetically what she remembered hearing as a child. And it did eventually lead me to the village. But, um, yeah, sometimes it's just kind of something that they heard at the dinner table. Now, 
what other kinds of things should we know? Uh, you know, do we need to do some investigation in terms of history of the country? We, you, typically, we kind of know the country. We just don't know the village. Absolutely. You need to, you know, study uh, the country of origin, you know, the what was going on at the time, what was pushing the immigrants out. We call it push-pull factors of immigration and emigration. So what was causing them to leave, what was pushing them out? Maybe it's a potato famine. Maybe it's uh, political or religious oppression. Maybe it's uh, running to escape military service, whatever it is. And then the pull factors, what's pulling them over? So usually it was the industry, so the promise of work, the economy, a better life, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And then what you need to do is really – just dive into those U.S. records, uh, you know, those North American records, as many as you can. So you, you start looking for things that will give you clues. And some records are better than others uh, in doing so. So, for example, census records aren't likely to give you a place of origin. Immigration records, it depends what year. So after, you know, in after the 1900s, after, say, 1907, when the passenger lists were expanded, then you started seeing more specific place names. Uh, so, you know, it helps to know the laws and it helps to know uh, the time period. And one other thing is that many immigrants on documents would, would give, you know, just a general place of reference. So they might say, oh, I came from Prague or I came from Dublin. And that's generally not good enough. You need to really drill down and try to get to those provinces or the uh, counties or, you know, the town or the village. And, and so sometimes that can be an obstacle as well. Yeah, I, I really think that the, the naturalization records, if you're fortunate enough to have found them, and typically those, um, I know I found mine at the county level, but also at the federal level, um, depending on the time frame, oftentimes that is where you might see the name of the village. Right. Typically before 1906, the papers just give bare bones information, so yeah. you may not see that. But the later you go, the, the, the more you can get. But you can always, you know, pick out clues and, and hopefully, you know, that, then, then once you get out your, your maps and so forth, your gazetteers for that country, you know, maybe you can start narrowing down. The more clues you can, you can gather. That's why it's better to try to find every record you can in the U.S. or, you know, uh, first before you, you, you even think about looking in, uh, across the pond for the person. Right. Now, I know you've um, taught this class a couple of times, and it's coming up again shortly. What are, have you, have you had some kind of great moments with some of your students, people who've kind of broken through and found that uh, location? What kinds of experiences do students have? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, a lot of times they're missing some of the key records, like maybe they, they forget to look maybe in court documents or, uh, you know, probate documents or something, or something that may, you know, may, may give, be more specific. And then finally, uh, once they, they put all the clues together, sometimes they say, oh yeah, this is, where it is, or I, you know, I misread this on, on the passenger list. I didn't really look at it carefully and I need to go back and, and, and review it again. And, and maybe they missed a detail. And so, uh, those are, those are the type of things that, that they, they usually figure out, um, once they start putting all the pieces together. Yeah. And I think that's where a class like this comes in so handy because it's so comprehensive. I know you've got all kinds of, you know, you really help them with the checklist. And, and that's it. You know, when you're just kind of picking away and you're, and you're following leads, 
there's it's so easy to miss something or to just jump over something because we get caught up in, in another line of uh, research. You mentioned, I think, gazetteers. And I know with place names, oftentimes, Germany is a great example. You finally get the name of the village and then you realize there's six of them. You know, <laughs> how how do you help your students narrow down which of the Grunwald Germanys is the right one? Well, yeah, like the the maps and the gazetteers help. Like, you know, usually the province or the county, or you know, however that country is divided. Uh, you know, when you start narrowing it down that way, and then uh, what I find is, you know, f- you know, Family Search has you know some great historical maps and gazetteers, both available, you know, in book form if you're out there researching in Salt Lake or microfilm or microfiche, and there are a lot of places also. Uh, it, depending on the country that you can find uh, these geographical dictionaries, these gazetteers online, and so you can you can start doing place name searches in in these tools, and and that's um, you know that's some of the things that we talk about in the course is you know where to find these these types of resources both online and offline, and then um, you know trying to you know pinpoint um, you know. With some of the different clues, for example, a gazetteers will list, you know, the, the churches that were in a particular town. So, you know, was there a Roman Catholic church? Was there a Lutheran? Was there a synagogue? And, you know, and how many, you know, how many people belong to that, you know, that parish and so forth. And, and so you can sort of historically then kind of try to connect the dots and then that helps you to narrow down the, you know, which place is it. So there are a lot of different clues that you can follow. Wonderful. Well, the class is called Finding Your Ancestral Village. And uh, before I let you go, I'm, I, can you give us a little rundown? You know, when we're going through the class, are we? Are they going to walk away with worksheets, tools? You know, there's the course material. What does the course look like and what are they going to be working with? Okay, the course material is very comprehensive and it, you know, it, it goes through the step by step. It gives you examples of documents uh, with specific examples of where to look, uh, for example, to find a, a, a town name or a place name. Uh, it gives you lots of links. Uh, there's an extensive course library with URLs and books and other resources. And so uh, there is a ton of material for students to take away. There's also exercises so that they can practice trying to locate the ancestral village. And is there any kind of a prerequisite? Are we talking about a certain geographic area that this is mo- more applicable to than others? It's it's pretty much, you know, any any area, anybody that needs to sort of leap across the pond. Uh, we try to do a variety of different examples showing, um, you know, from different countries and so forth. Uh, but I would think that, you know, if, if you're if you're just a beginner, you know, you definitely want to make sure that you're you're taking some of the other you know, immigration courses, this is sort of a, a one course in, in a bundle where you're looking at immigration records and, and U.S. records, and then you sort of move into, okay, uh, I've, I've identified all the sources I need to check. Now I'm going to look for that village. And so then you start using the map tools and some of the other things we talk about. And then you sort of, then once you find out where it is, then you start finding the, the resources across the pond. So uh, it, it, you know, it really, it's really for anybody, but the, the more experience you have searching uh, initially, the, the better. 
Well, great. Well, those of you listening, if this sounds interesting to you, you know, it's a big job kind of working with all these various tools and following the different leads. The class is really going to make a difference. As she said, it's a part of a bundle of classes. So head to the show notes for this podcast episode. I will have a link to this um, class specifically, but also to the other related immigration classes um, at, at Family Tree University. You really are going to find specific how to help <laughs> at those classes that are really going to help you make a difference. Um, Lisa, always wonderful to talk to you, and thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Lisa. Well, once again, in this episode, we've made great strides in our research, and in this one in particular, talking about geography and location. But unless you have a solid plan for protecting and preserving your family history, all of that can be lost. Did you know that September is National Disaster Preparedness Month? So this is a great time to be thinking about this. Let's head on over to the publisher's desk, where Family Tree Magazine publisher Allison Dolan has some strategies that can help. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Gosh, you know, every time we we do an episode, I know we all kind of just move forward in our research and we're getting more and more stuff and data and pictures. But um, in thinking about preparedness, boy, that's a whole nother ballgame, isn't it? What kinds of tools and and, uh, resources do you have to kind of help us make sure we don't lose all this? Well, as you mentioned, it's National Disaster Preparedness Month and you know, what really got me thinking about this topic is it feels like every time I turn on the radio or the TV, there's news about some wildfire in the West or a tornado or, you know, there was a superstorm Sandy last fall. And a common theme that you hear when you are listening to these eyewitnesses accounts is that people's family photos and family mementos are important enough for them that they'll say something like, well, I grabbed my kids and the dog and my photo album and I got the heck out of there. Or conversely, you know, that's the thing that they lament that they lost. Well, I've lost all of my memories. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really great time for us as genealogists to take some steps to make sure that all of our family photos that we've been working to compile, um, maybe we have some that have been passed down for generations, and all of that research you've done and the papers that you've gathered and all of those things that um, really are meaningful to your family to make sure that those don't get lost in a disaster. Yeah, there's there's nothing like a disaster to really clarify what's important and what's not. People don't usually say, oh, I lost my big screen TV. You know, but exactly. <laughs> you hear about the pictures. Now, I know that there is a webinar coming up. And um, tell us about that, because this is a great way to get started. Absolutely. You know, in terms of a crash course on the things that you really, the steps you need to take, um, this is a great one. And it's called Disaster Preparedness for Genealogists. It's happening on September 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And Denise Levenick, who um, blogs over at The Family Curator, she's going to be leading this webinar. And she's going to give you some really practical advice in terms of getting started, um, putting your own disaster preparedness plan together for your genealogical materials. Oh, and she's ideal for this. I know she's the author of How to Archive Family Keepsakes, which is a book you can find at Shop Family Tree. And, you know, what are some of those strategies and things that she might be covering in this that that we could look forward to, to getting up to speed on? Sure. Well, of course, um, one of the things that Denise covers in her book is the 
elements of where's a safe place to store things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a disaster might be as simple as your basement gets flooded. And so that makes your basement a really horrible place to be storing (laughs) anything important. Uh, So, you know, she'll cover some things like that. But in terms of big natural events, like a tornado or a fire or something of that nature, you know, I think the best plan for any genealogist is to make sure that you have important things digitized. Because think about it. If there's a fire in your home, you're not going to stop to grab um, all of your research. You're going to take, you know, life and death situation. You're going to make sure that you get out and you're safe first. Um, In some cases, losing the physical stuff is inevitable. Mm -hmm. If a tornado rips through your town, you know, there's not really anything you can do to prevent um, stuff from getting lost. And so the great thing about digitizing stuff is, well, you may have lost those physical items. If you have a digital copy, you still have that content and you still have the memory associated with it. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, 10 years ago, I remember making a lot of uh, CDs, burning CDs with digital copies, things I scanned, and I put those in a little fire safe that I could grab and take with me. But we have a, a much better option today, which of course is cloud backup, because if we are backing up our digitized items onto the cloud, then they're literally not in the same location. That's the best scenario, right? Absolutely. I really advocate that people think about making as many copies of their digital files as possible. You know, online backup is a great way to keep things off site, and then you have access to it at any time of day or night. Um, you know, but that doesn't have to be your only step. You know, your strategy could include having some additional copies on a flash drive or a hard drive um, that you store in somebody's house in an, another town, um, a relative for example, or a friend. Um, and then if something happens to you in, in your home, then um, you've got that extra copy someplace else. The more copies that you have of things, the less likely that any would be lost forever. So, you know, really lots of copies keeps things safe is a, a sort of saying that people use in, in terms of preservation. Yeah, it's so true. And it's one of those things it's hard to make time for but it's probably the best investment we could ever uh, make of our time. Again, the, what the webinar that Allison's been talking about is disaster preparedness for genealogists. That's what Denise Levinick. It's going to be on September 25th. And of course, her book is a wonderful resource and it covers the gamut of items that you might want to preserve and protect and the ways in which you would do that. It's called How to Archive Family Keepsakes. Um, great resources, and boy, this is the perfect month to be thinking about it. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this September 2013 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Sonny Morton's article in the September 2013 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's called Local Flavor, and that's where you're going to get all the details on the six strategies that she reveals for flushing out that backstory on where your ancestors lived. You can order the paper issue or electronic file issue at shopfamilytree.com, and I'll have those specific links for you in the show notes. And next, head on over to the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And there you're going to find 
uh, all the information and website links for everything that we talked about on today's episode, including links to History Geo, Lisa Alzo's class on finding your ancestral village, and most importantly, those resources for protecting your family history during this National Disaster Preparedness Month. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my websites, genealogygems.com. And there you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available free through iTunes. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.